you know, I like the way you just said that and it hit me that instead of asking, where can I find happiness? I think the key is to say, where can I create happiness yes. for another person? Because, you know, and, I, and I've talked about this with some of my friends when, like if I have a good friend who's really struggling in her life or his life, the last thing I would do is recommend they kind of look inward and be more introspective. The first thing I would suggest <laughs> is they go try and improve the well-being of another person instead of looking inward and worry about themselves. Today, I'm honored to talk to a superhero and certainly one of the greatest thinkers alive today, Tom Rath. As the best-selling author of 10 books, including StrengthsFinder 2.0, and a former head of Gallup's research on employee management and leadership, Tom is the world's leading expert on building your strength and creating a fully charged and meaningful life. So Tom, I'm so excited to have you on the show. Thanks so much. It's an honor to be with you. Now, what you've accomplished over the last you know, two decades is, is nothing short of amazing. And you know, I really want to dive deeper later into you know, the research you've done and really what it takes to become a great human being. But before that, I want to quickly touch on your own story. Because if we go back almost 30 years now to the time you were 16, it was the beginning for you of a lifelong struggle of adversity. And it seems like that was also the turning point that really allowed you to maybe even motivate you or drive you. And I'm really curious to hear about that to really create this life that you're living now. So can you maybe take us back to a moment and share how it's impacted you, you, your life since then? Yeah, I appreciate you asking because that's a, it's good context about essentially why I've worked on a lot of the topics that I have and a lot of the work I've done in recent years. When I was uh, roughly 16 years old, I was uh, living a pretty normal childhood. I grew up in the Midwestern United States. And at some point I realized that I was having trouble seeing out of my left eye and um, eventually went to an eye doctor, uh, ended up losing all sight in that eye to several large and cancerous tumors. And the doctors told me that that was also indicative that I had a very rare condition that essentially shuts off the body's most powerful tumor suppressing gene. And so I uh, realized at that age that uh, one thing is I started to spend a lot of time digging into all of the research that I could find about anything I could do to help myself live a little bit longer in good health. And then uh, I also began to really focus and prioritize a lot of my efforts over the 20 years since then around where I could make the greatest contributions for other people that would essentially continue to live on in my absence. And that's what's focused a lot of my most recent work. You know, it's so interesting. So, because so many people, when they, when they hit that adversity, especially something like this, they would break, right? And they'd give up. So how do you manage in that moment to grow from that and to focus on, okay, I'm not just going to focus on myself, but I'm actually going to focus on serving the world. Yeah, you know, it's interesting. I, I was curious about why that played out so um, well. And I, I mean, you know, it's interesting looking back on it was nowhere near as challenging as you might have thought because of the people around me and the positive focus on what could be done and so forth. And when I went back and looked at some research just in the last few years, it turns out that when kids face real big threats and challenges at that age, especially when they're kind of between the ages of 10 and 18, I believe, um, they actually emerge stronger on average when compared to youth that haven't faced some of those challenges. So um, I believe that's what uh, some psychologists have coined and called post-traumatic growth, where 
essentially it forces you to think about what's important in life and helps to shape your priorities in the years that follow. Yeah, I think it's so interesting because it really seems like you've been sort of since then on this mission to share with people, how do you make the most out of every single day? And so I'm, I'm really obsessed with this concept of memento mori. So remembering death, right? Keeping the last day you have in mind to find a way to live a better life. So is that something that you actively keep in your mind? You know, it is. I do. I spend a lot of time on a daily basis thinking about how I can contribute to something that will continue to grow in my absence. And so, and it, that doesn't mean when I'm gone necessarily, but even on a daily basis, if I can spend even an hour on something that could continue to benefit another person a week from now, a month from now. And that's not just about writing and research. That uh, Some of the most important ways I do that are through an hour of asking a good friend questions and offering some advice and mentoring or just spending an hour practicing a sport or reading to my kids. Those are investments that I know will continue to grow whether I'm there uh, working on it a week from now or not. Yeah, I love that. And so looking at it from the outside at your work, it seems like there's this interesting trajectory of really, you know, focusing in the inside first, focusing on strength, right? And then later on, really focusing on the outside focus of how can I contribute to the world? So is that something that you deliberately did, like the shift from looking inside, what are my strengths? Then, you know, now your recent work is really focused on how can I serve the world the best, right? Those answering this life's biggest question, right? Of like, what can I bring to the world? Is that something that you deliberately sort of changed and developed? You know, it's a very good question. And um, when I reflect on that now, I think early on in my career, I realized that there's a huge uh, opportunity out there in the modern workplace where essentially, you know, we've, we've done a better job of matching people with uh, romantic partners on match and tinder and the like than we have on matching people with jobs yes and um and so i could see really early on in some of the work i did with my grandfather don clifton on strengths finder early on that week one big step is to give people more self-awareness so they can go out and find jobs and tasks and teams that are a better fit for their natural talents and i think over the last 20 years, in addition to the StrengthsFinder work, there's been a lot of good work in books and assessments and development programs that have essentially helped us to learn a lot about who we are as individuals. But when I stepped back a few years ago and looked at, have we made some progress in where we are? What I realized is we really haven't done enough work looking at what the world needs. So we spent a lot of time on the supply side of the equation but maybe not enough time looking at the demand side of the equation and what our customers need, what our clients need, what our communities and families need from us and broad, in a broader sense, matching what the world needs with who we are. So that's what helped me to step back and say, how can we give people more effective ways to think about starting with what the world needs and ways to match that up and quantify that and line it up on a daily basis? Yeah, you know, it's so interesting because to me, there's, there's really, I mean, three big things to the equation, right? There's like, what you're great at, those skills, those strengths, right? There's like, what are you passionate about? What do you care? And then there's that service, right? Of like, what do you want to provide to the world? And it seems like you need to combine all of these together in order to really make the most impact in your life. Am I getting that right? Yeah, you are. And I think it's the, 
orientation of saying, how do your efforts serve another human being and looking outward, the more, one of the things that's been really a fun learning for me as I've worked on this most recent book and uh, kind of website that accompanies it is that the more time that I spend thinking about helping other people on a given day, the less stressful it is, the easier it is to get work done. And it's just a whole different mindset and approach than when you spend days looking inward and worrying about yourself and the like. And so I think if we can help more people to focus their daily efforts on the influence it has on even one other person, it just makes work more meaningful, more enjoyable, and it energizes us mentally and physically as well. Yeah, talk to me more about that because that's what I find so interesting, right? Because most people are really focused on like what I can get, right? So, so where do I find a joy? Where do I find happiness? But what you're really suggesting is, is changing the whole lens that we use to view life to how can I give more, right? How can I contribute more? So talk to me more about that. You know, I like the way you just said that and it hit me that instead of asking where can I find happiness, I think the key is to say, where can I create happiness yes. for another person? Because, you know, and, I, and I've talked about this with some of my friends when, like if I have a good friend who's really struggling in her life or his life, the last thing I would do is recommend they kind of look inward and be more introspective. The first thing I would suggest <laughs> is they go try and improve the well-being of another person instead of looking inward and worry about themselves. And um I think there's been a lot of good research on that in recent years where instead of focusing on happiness, to focus on meaning and contribution actually works a lot better no matter where you are in your own situation right now. And it's why, you know, I, I know there's been a lot of talk about helping people to pursue their passion and pursue their interests and the like. And I don't know that that's the best place to start because if you recommend to someone from a career standpoint that they start with their passions, that's essentially assuming that the rest of the world will fall into line and revolve around their own passions. Yeah. And unfortunately it doesn't work that way most of the time. And so if you start with what the people around you need, and then you go back and connect the dots between who you are and your natural talents and your motivations and what you're interested in, it usually yields a more productive result. Yes, it seems like it's really this very relationship-driven approach to life where you focus more on like relationships and making those better rather than just on yourself. So can you share with us a little bit about you know, the importance of you know, contributing to others and having the right people around in our lives? Yeah, you know, it's, I think that's probably the most underestimated aspect of any approach to career development that I've seen is that it's really all about relationships. And, you know, when I interview some of the world's top psychologists and researchers and experts that I've met, the one thing there's almost universal consensus and agreement on is the fact that our social relationships are the single most important predictor of our overall well-being over a lifetime. And, you know, in this day and age, we get so caught up in things, and we get so busy that it's easy to respond and pay attention to all these little things coming in flying at us on a daily basis. But yet what's most important in the long run is if we're investing in and nurturing our closest social relationships. And, you know, that can be as simple as asking someone you care about a really good question and then keeping your own mouth closed and keeping your device stowed away and mm -hmm. genuinely listening 
to that person's response. I'm increasingly convinced that over the next 10 to 25 years, the most valuable thing that one can do for another person is to genuinely listen after you've asked a good question. Wow, I love that. You know, it's I, I feel this every time, right? I have conversations just today with a friend, right? And we're going so deep and like, you know, what are your even biggest insecurities and fears and all that? And what I found is like being able to have these conversations is really one of the most enriching experiences that you can have in your life. So can you share maybe for people, because you seem to, to be fantastic at this, like how do you how do you have those conversations? That's something that, you know, people, you know, I'm a student, I'm doing my master's right now in, in positive psychology. And so many students oftentimes have this problem. They say to me, Max, I just don't know how to go deep, right? I don't know how to go above and beyond like the, so what do you do for a living? What do you, you know, studying? How do you go, people go deeper? You know, I think it's by asking questions that help the other person to go a little bit deeper in terms of talking about their own life and their own experience. So just as a quick example, you know, I'm, I'm far more introverted according to most assessments I've taken. And so I, I usually try and avoid cocktail parties when I do end up <laughs> being forced into it and uh, begrudgingly going along. You know, what I've learned is that instead of just asking someone what they do, which usually yields a quick and not very telling response about a job title, what I like to ask people is, well, tell me a little bit about what that means. What do you spend your time doing? What, what does a typical day look like? And, you know, I, I actually learned that from some of the really good research in positive psychology and behavioral economics, where about a decade ago, scientists like Danny Kahneman and Arthur Stone and the late Alan Kruger started asking people to reconstruct their day instead of just asking them basic questions about life satisfaction. And it turns out when you ask someone to reconstruct what a typical day looks like hour by hour and play by play, you learn a lot more about a person's life and about their experience. They disclose more and it's, it's usually a good relationship building activity. Well, I love that. This idea of really going deep and asking these really specific, like how, how does your life basically look like on a daily basis? Right. And not just superficial questions. Um, now, you mentioned introversion before, and so I'm, I'm super always, you know, interested in personality and, you know, changing that, right? Because I started out as an introvert as well, and, and for me, for a long time, I wanted to become an extrovert, and I feel like I've, over the last year or so, really learned it as a skill, probably still not introverted, but I've learned it as a skill. So, can you talk to us a little about, you know, personality traits and strength, and, you know, how much is that really changeable and adaptable in our lives? Oh, boy, that's a, that's a fun question, and um, I've spent my entire career just digging in on that and learning about it. And um, my own opinions and answer to that question have changed quite a bit over the last few years, the more I learn. And so, I mean, one of the amazing things about kind of being alive at the time that we are right now is that you can wake up every morning and learn some things that challenge your assumptions. And I'm the best days for me are days when I prove myself wrong and upend an existing belief. And so, I mean, to that end, I think one of the things that I'd assumed about personality and especially the introversion and extroversion continuum is that that's one of those things that's probably more hardwired and pretty hard to change over time. But in the last 
I'd say three to five years in particular, I just continue to read really good research. Some of it in well-designed experiments where you have one group of more introverted people who are exposed to a control condition and another group that is forced to act more extroverted, even though that goes against their kind of big five diagnostic personality type. And what surprised me most is, you know, even for people like me who are more introverted, when you force us to go out and be more extroverted, it ends up improving our well-being on most measures. And when, at least in some recent work I've been looking at, when you look at it over the span of a full week, there really aren't many detrimental effects to forcing an introvert to push their personality a little bit on the edge of that continuum. So while I still think that most parts, most aspects of personality are relatively stable over years and uh, somewhat stable over decades, let's say, it's clear to me now that it's probably a good thing to challenge parts of our personality that could help us to create more well-being for ourselves and other people over the span of years. You know, this is so interesting, right? That like for any introvert look, like listening to this right now, that like by challenging yourself to push those limits, that you can actually increase your well-being. Super interesting. So I'm really curious, what are some other beliefs, right? Because you've been in this field for a long time now. So what, what other sort of mindset shifts, beliefs, insights have you had that really sort of shifted the way that you look at life or personality or, you know, just basically happiness and meaning in life? Yeah, you know, I think one that we touched on a little bit is that um, I started my career off studying kind of individual personality. And then I, I was in the, the first graduate program uh, Marty Seligman did in positive psychology. That was my graduate uh, degree. And I had always focused on kind of happiness and well-being and um, how do we help people to improve those things at an individual level. And I think what I've learned as more and more good uh, research has emerged on uh, meaningful work and joy and purpose is that uh, the more we orient those efforts towards the contribution they make to society and to other people, the more progress we make on an individual level. So um, that's what led me to work on this most recent book about life's great question and helping people to essentially zoom in on the contributions they're making each day. Because I, I think even if the goal is just to improve well-being, we can create a lot more collective well-being if we turn people's energies outward to more uh, other directed pursuits. So how do you people, how do you help people then you really define that or answer that great question, right? How do you help people define what is that service? Do you have a certain set of questions or how could people figure that out? Yeah, you know, I realized as I started to work on this book that people needed more tools and diagnostics and activities in order to apply that regularly. So we created an accompanying website that's called, it's Contribify is the name of the website. And that's a site where people can go through an inventory and the questions it asks them are pretty, I mean, there's some basic ones about what are the big roles you play in life? So for example, for me, that's being a dad and a husband and a researcher and a writer. So those are far more meaningful and emotional roles than job titles or uh, things you'd see on a resume, for example. We then 
ask people about the their miles or their most influential life experiences. So as we talked about earlier, both good experiences and challenging and traumatic life experiences are really important because they shape who we are and they shape why we do what we do and what we do and don't want to do more of in the future. And then we ask people about how they describe their strengths. And then the, you know, the fourth part of that essential contribify profile that people build, it's kind of a baseball card that's a more human emotional version of a resume. But the fourth part of it entails asking people about 50 questions where they prioritize how they want to best contribute to the teams that they're on, to the organizations that they're a part of. And uh, I hope that's helpful for people because right now when we join teams, we often, you know, everyone around a given team just starts running at full speed in the same direction. We don't take the time to say, here's how I think I could uniquely contribute. And so that we're doing that in a complementary way and not overlapping with our efforts to a given group or team. Yeah, I love that. And I'll put up the link to that in the show notes. But maybe can you share some of those questions of like, how can people, you know, think about the contribution? Like how, how do you find those different kinds of contribution that are possible? Yeah, you know, when I went and looked at the contributions in the work world, at least that are valued today, and I started with uh, thousands of different job types and categories. And I tried to narrow that down to what are the basic functions that literally any team needs to think about and work on on a daily basis. And I narrowed that down to three elements of create and relate and operate. So a team has to create something. They need to have a product or a service essentially and get something rolling. They need to relate to one another and have good relationships both within the team and outside the team. And they need to figure out how can they energize each other and influence other constituencies on a day-to-day basis. And then The third core element I think any team needs to deal with is how can we continue to operate or produce things at a quality level and how can we continue to scale what we do so we reach more and more people over time. So that's a part of the activity that we take people through is to say, how can they sit around as a team and say how each person wants to contribute in that given circumstance or situation. And so it's important to note that that's more of a situational activity where I might need to pitch in on the relationship building on one team that I'm on where there are other people who really do that better than I could on a different team that I'm on. So anytime you're joining a group, I think it's good to essentially sit around and have that level setting, expectation setting conversation so that we're all working as synergistically as we can. You know, I love this really proactive approach of, of really learning to understand everybody in your team, right? This is something I see more and more coming slowly of like, you know, sitting down at work, right? And like, before you get started, right, right like you say, like running all in and hopefully the same direction, like you first figure out like who has, what, like who has those strengths that are needed, right? Who can contribute what to this team? And so I love this, this deliberate focus on that. Um, now, one thing I've been dying to ask you is really, about your your research and your learning process because you just have this ability to really take ideas and like you say, thousands of research articles and psychologists and all this stuff and put it together in a way that, in a framework that makes sense for people. So how does your your process of really taking, you know, in information and dissecting it and and putting it out there, what does that look like? Well, you know, the first thing that I do and some of this stems back to the, story we were talking about with 
just trying to discover things that uh, can help me from a physical health standpoint so I can live longer and better health. So as a result of that, I to this day, it's been 25 plus years since I was that diagnosis, but I wake up every morning. The first thing I do is uh, just read a whole series of probably anywhere between 50 and 100 abstracts of different research, mostly medical, wow. some on psychology, sociology, a little bit on economics, some on business. And I, I read every morning in large part because it gives me hope for the future. I mean, I mean, if, if, you're, if you're someone like me who's battling cancer in my kidneys and spine and pancreas and all these organs, boy, there's nothing that'll give you more hope than reading all these medical discoveries on a daily basis, because you know there are hundreds of researchers out there working to treat the things that I'm dealing with each day. So um, that's how I start my day off. And then uh, I spend quite a bit of time throughout the day just trying to organize and synthesize some of that information. And then on a really good day, I get to assemble some of that in the form of a conversation, in the form of an article, in the form of a book, so that it can hopefully be a benefit to uh, the people that I care about and maybe even a wider audience in some cases, ideally. And um, then I guess to some of the things that we've been talking about, I make sure that I spend at least a few hours every day investing in my closest friendships, my closest relationships, and most importantly, investing in the development of my kids who are uh, nine and 11 and still want to spend time with me at this point. So <laughs> I'm, I'm trying to take advantage of that as much as I can in the last few years. For sure. So talk to me more about that. Like, you know, with all of this background wealth of knowledge, what do you try to distill of that in, in your kids? Well, you know, I think the, the biggest takeaway for me that goes back to my first book uh, that I worked on with my grandfather, How Full Is Your Bucket, is that our lives are kind of the product of all these little interactions. And it's really easy to take those interactions for granted, but boy, do they accumulate and do they ever count. And you know, for someone like me that has all these persistent threats to my health and the like, um, it's a lot, maybe a lot easier for me to see and to say that, you know, it's easy to put things off that we're working on until tomorrow and say, we always have the next day to do something. But, you know, it's easy to take those things for granted. Really, I would argue that we have today to have a meaningful conversation and a positive influence on another person. And that's the only thing that you can kind of guarantee. And so I use that as a reminder to spend time each and every day investing a little bit of time in learning, a little bit of time in synthesizing information that might help other people. And most importantly, as much time as I can, investing in the people I care about and my closest relationships. You know, this is such an important point. And for, for anyone listening to this, I think that is the situation that all of us find ourselves in, whether we're battling disease or not, that at any moment of our lives, we might die. Like it might be the last day of your life today because we just don't know what's going to happen. And so this, this continuous focus on making the most out of today, enjoying it the most, serving the most, really treating every interaction as if it was the last opportunity to really show that person you love I found that like this mindset really allows you to just make the most out of every single day. You know, it's interesting you, you say that. I hadn't really thought about it much before, but um, at, one thing that's nice is that as a product of trying to do that on a daily basis, and, um, you know, I orient a lot of my work around a, a quote from Dr. King that 
has always inspired me where he said, life's most persistent and urgent question is, what are you doing for others? And I found that when I ask myself that every morning and orient my efforts around answering that question, boy, days are just a lot less stressful. They're a lot more enjoyable. And to, to your point, when I was just thinking about it when you were talking, I have almost no regret in life. I mean, there, I, there's almost nothing that I look back on or worry about or regret because I've taken the time to make those investments in people on a daily basis and so forth instead of putting that off. So I, I, one thing I'd encourage your listeners to think about is how the more you can orient your time in a day around those contributions it makes, your work makes for other people, the less regret you have and the less stressful your days are. Love that. Do you think people spend too much time in the heads, like getting caught up in, in their own you know, goals and achievements and dramas? Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, I, like I, when I see that, I, I think, you know, it's really a shame sometimes because I understand how it's easy to get caught up in that stuff. But the more time that gets allocated to those thoughts from a mind share standpoint, the more stress you have, the less kind of positive generative thought you're sharing with others. And it, 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 it actually sabotages your own well-being to a degree. You know, it's, it's such a fascinating idea to me because, you know, people like you or like Mother Teresa or Martin Luther King, like those people that like, you know, really change the world and contribute to others. Like you wouldn't think about those kind of people and, and be like, oh, they're only focused on like their success. Like you don't think about Mother Teresa focusing on, you know, wanting to be famous or whatever, right? Like you just know that she's so focused on other people. And as a byproduct of that, she also gets all the other stuff and all the, you know, fame and all that stuff. But it's not like the, the thing that she's looking for, right? Yeah, it's, you know, it's fascinating to me where as I, the, as I get the chance to spend time with an interview and talk to some of the leaders out there in the world that I've admired the most, and these are people who have um, led the big branches of government or huge organizations, and uh, they're now retired. And, you know, I spent a lot of time with them because they're thinking about writing books, and I like to advise people on that. But when I get the chance to talk to leaders who I admire the most in this world, I end up spending more time talking in many cases because they're just such good listeners and they do such a good job of asking thoughtful questions and they're not at all worried about themselves or their own agendas, to your point. So it's, it's kind of refreshing that kind of the further you go up that ladder of success, the more interested people are in others and the less self-focused they are. Yeah, that's so interesting. So what else have you found about, you know, the greatest leaders that you've met? Like, what are some characteristics they share or some mindsets or some traits? I think they're lifelong learners. They're always reading. They're always learning. They're always asking good questions. I, to one of the things I mentioned earlier, I think they, they, they're extremely open-minded in many cases, and they are quick to admit when they're wrong. And in some cases feel a sense of uh, gratification in being wrong because it means they learn something new. Um, I think they spend a lot of time thinking about the growth of other people and how they can inspire others to think broader about their communities and bring people together. Yeah, it is so interesting, right? Because again, it goes back to this outward focus on like how do other people live better lives because I was there basically. Now, you mentioned before, you know, your, your almost obsessive focus on like health and being charged on a daily basis. 
So can you share with us some tips on, you know, how do people actually create, you know, the energy to drive on a daily basis? What are some habits or steps they can take for that? Yeah. You know, it's a good question. It's a, it's the best place for people to start. Um, one of the other observations I've made when we talk about leaders and the, the professions that I admire most. So let's say teachers, and I've spent time with hospice nurses and uh, people who run nonprofits, community organizations. The leaders I admire most, unfortunately, are often, because they're always putting everyone else first, they end up putting their own health and well-being, their health in particular, on the back burner. And what I've learned is that your own health and energy, that's the one place where you need to put your own health and well-being first. It's like that oxygen mask example when you get on an airplane and a flight attendant on Southwest a couple of weeks ago said to me, you know, you need to put your oxygen mask on first before you put your sons on. And when it comes to your health, I think you need to do that because as a product of putting everyone else's health and needs first, these people I admire so much, you know, they're often showing up for work and they don't have enough energy to be their best for other people. So doing that well and turning that equation around so that leaders can be good examples of modeling good health and energy. It starts with getting one good night of sleep, just one good night, because if you do that, it's like the reset button on a video game or a smartphone where you get to wake up the next morning, no matter how bad of a mood you were in the day before, and you're in, you're in a pretty good place where you're more likely to eat the right things the next day, you're more likely to be active and move around. And as a product of eating and moving and sleeping well in tandem, that starts upward spirals where you have progressively better days. But the key to all of that is it really starts with these small decisions throughout the day. So I know that if I have a really healthy lunch today with a lot of greens or a salad, I'm far more likely to have the energy I need at a meeting at three or four o'clock in the afternoon. Um, and if I'm more active throughout the day and I move around instead of sitting all day, I'm going to feel far better and have the energy I need to be a good dad and be active with my kids at six o'clock in the evening. So the more that you can connect short-term incentives with some of the right long-term goals, it makes it a lot easier to make those decisions as you move through your day. Yeah, that I find so interesting, right? Because people, when, when they want to make these changes, they usually focus on, okay, if I exercise today and tomorrow and the next day, I might be, you know, looking good at a beach in three months from now, this summer, right? But what you're saying here really is like connecting it to today and seeing like, how does what I do today actually affect my life today, my happiness, my energy, my drive today, right? Yeah. And, you know, I think you have to think about it on a kind of like fuel for your day basis, because even in my case where I have more chronic health threats than about anyone, um, that's not a very good motivator to skip the cheeseburger and French fries at lunch. Um, it's, it's just, it's not. But knowing that I can't afford to have a high fat, high sugar hangover when I have a presentation or an interview at four o'clock in the afternoon, that's a much better reason to eat a healthier lunch. And um, so when you begin to weave those short-term daily within the day incentives into your routine, it also works in your long-term interests and it makes it a lot easier to make good decisions each and every day. Yeah, I absolutely love that. Now talking about the decisions, what has been the most difficult decision that you had to make in order to become the person that you are now? Well, that's a good question. You know, I think that taking the time to 
step back a, a few years ago and acknowledge that I could contribute more to the things that mattered most in terms of uh, time with my kids while they were young and time with more dedicated research and writing instead of spending a lot of time traveling and uh, being on airplanes and responding to a lot of needs from customers and clients and the like. That's probably been the most uh, important and meaningful and rewarding decision I've made over the last decade or so. And it's um, it's resulted in more quality time with the people who matter most than I th had even thought of at the time and thought was possible. Well, so it's, it really sounds like it's about cutting down priorities, right? And like focusing only on a few essentials in your life. Yeah. And, you know, to this day, that's the hardest thing for me to do. And to say, how do I focus a, a mentor and friend of mine, Bill George, who was old founder of Medtronic and wrote the great book, True North. Wow. Um, he talks about focusing on what's important instead of what's urgent when I talk to him. And that's been a good North Star for me in saying, how do I make sure I spend some time today on the things that are important for other people instead of just, boy, it's a lot easier to try and get to inbox zero and it feels better in the yeah. short term. But that really, no one will care a week from now if I got to inbox zero, but it will matter if I invested an hour in a conversation like we're having right now. And it'll, it will matter if I invest an hour in writing something that maybe someone benefits from in their career. Yes, and I definitely appreciate that time. So one thing we love to do on the show is we love to celebrate failure as a stepping stone to building character and growth. So throughout your life, do you have a favorite failure? Um, you know, I've, I've, I've tried and failed at so many things uh, in the last 10 years that <laughs> uh, it's hard to keep track of my failures. But, um, you know, there's, uh, I guess, I don't know if I'd call this a failure, but something that I was pretty convinced, I don't know, um, probably 15 years ago that uh, one of the big problems in the workplace is that people just don't have enough really close friends at work. And um, I knew that mattered from a research standpoint. And I invested a lot of time and energy with a team of people at Gallup and uh, working on a book called Vital Friends that was all about uh, having important friendships at work. And we put together an assessment that helped people to identify their friends at work and how they made unique contributions to their lives and the like. And, you know, while I'm, I feel really proud of the work I did with the team back then, um, it turns out that people still don't really realize the need to have really good friends at work. Yeah. <laughs> um, and so that, like, I think from a time and energy and a commercial standpoint, um, some people might consider that a failure, but um, I, to this day, I think I, I continue to hope that someday people will kind of come around and realize that they need to invest a lot more time and energy in having real close personal friendships with people that they work with. But um, it's, you know, I, I had an interview request about that book yesterday, and uh, it's still a very fun topic for people to talk about in the media, but individual managers, leaders, workers, uh, still haven't seen much need there. Yeah. Well, why, why do you think that is? Like, why do you think relationships at work are so undervalued and underappreciated almost? Um, my real 
you know, this is my kind of one top of mind answer is that, especially in leadership circles, I, I think, and this is a generalization, I think men are really bad at acknowledging the need to invest in and build and nurture relationships relative to women. And I think there are far too many men in leadership positions in the modern workplace and there's nowhere near enough gender diversity. And so honestly, that's, that's a part of the problem is that we have poor demographics in the workplace today and especially among leadership teams that I've spent time with. And I, even beyond that, so that's, that's kind of a root part of the problem. I think beyond that, you know, there was a kind of a push for people to not get too personal in the workplace with harassment and the like 25 years ago. And there's been a big resurgence in that in the last few years. And unfortunately, I, I worry that sometimes that prevents people from having close personal friendships at work. And if we're going to spend a majority of our waking hours uh, in the workplace on average, we need to have really close personal friendships at work or it's not going to be fun and we're not going to stay engaged in our jobs and it's not going to be anywhere as meaningful as it could be. So I, I do hope that people start to come around to that over the next decade. Yes, definitely. Very, very important. I've also found in my personal life. Now, Tom, we talked about a lot of strategies, a lot of ideas today. If you could give our listeners one piece of homework, one challenge that they can take away from this to live a more meaningful life, what would that be? I would say to find one way where you can bring a reminder of who your work serves into your daily routine. So if that's a, if you're fortunate enough to get to see the customers and people you serve each day, take a moment to acknowledge that and the, the fact that you're having a positive influence on one of those people that you can see. If you don't get to see the person each day, bring some kind of a reminder, a photograph, some testimony from the people that you serve into your daily routine. And then try and use that to continue to ask the question at least once a day about who specifically is better off because of the work that you do each day and make sure that you can remind yourself of that influence. Love that. Now, Tom, before I ask my final question, where can listeners connect with you online? Yeah, they can learn more about this new book, Life's Great Question, uh, at contribify.com, which is the website that accompanies the book. And they can learn more about my other books at tomrath.org. Fantastic. Going to link to that. Now, my final question, what, does your, what is your quest for greatness? So what's that big vision that you have for your life that you want to use to serve the world? Yeah, my, the more I've spent time thinking about this, my uh, personal mission is to continue to create some ideas and activities and uh, products and the like that can continue to grow for many decades uh, in my absence. All right, guys, that's it for today. I really hope you enjoyed this episode. I hope you gained some valuable ideas, tips, tools, tricks, mindsets, belief systems that will hopefully inspire you to take your life to the next level. At the end of the day, guys, it's all about application. The only thing that's going to set you apart tomorrow from where you are today is how much action you take with those ideas that you gain. And so I really want to challenge you at this point to you know, not just listen to this passively, to not just consume this, you know, passively just think about other things, but to really 
take those lessons, take those ideas that you just gained and start applying them to your life. So really start taking action and sprinting towards those goals and those dreams that you have in your life. Now guys, at this point, I wanna ask you for a huge favor. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider heading over to iTunes and leaving a review as that helps me really grow the show and reach more people, impact even more people around the world. You know, if you have a family member, a friend, a loved one maybe that you think could benefit from this content, please consider, you know, sharing it with them, forwarding to them as that helps us really build a community of like-minded people that are all about maxing out their lives. Now, guys, with that being said, thanks so much for tuning in today. I really, really appreciate it. Stay strong and see you tomorrow.